Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Joe and Joe Weather Show with Joe Rayo on my left. And I'm Joe Choppy, and this is going to be a special Joe and Joe Rayo show because Joe Rayo is good. Joe's Ray, Joe Rayo is going to talk from start to finish. Uh, the uh, Joe and Joe Weather Show is brought to you by Omni True Value Hardware at 1226 North Wellwood Avenue in West Babylon, 631-756-1125 for the best prices in town. Not only do they have uh, all the mulch and everything else you need to make your yard look great, but they also have all the emergency supplies you might need just in case uh, we wind up getting a hurricane this hurricane season. And that includes generators to, and uh, pumps, sump pumps, uh, gasoline canisters, uh, safety cans. So uh, head over to Omni at, again, 1226 North Wellwood Avenue in West Babylon and the website is omnitruevalue.com wholesale holiday lighting by giannini our other sponsor uh, your complete holiday lighting specialist meeting all your decorating needs so when the holidays come if you want your home decorated or maybe you want to do this as a business to earn some extra money uh, just give them a call 631-957-5106 they are at uh, 162 ocean avenue in lindenhurst on long island and the website is liholidaylighting.com and, of course, in both cases, you would be supporting local businesses, which is so very important uh, these days. So uh, Joe tonight is going to be talking, uh, you know, he's been, you've been gallivanting virtually all over creation in the tri-state area uh, with your presentation on the, the uh, solar eclipse, uh, the uh, annular solar eclipse that's going to be happening on June 10th. Uh, and... Uh, you're gonna you're gonna do that show tonight for 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 our for our audience. Yes, well, you know, people have been asking like, why is it that Joe and Joe's on at eight thirty or nine o'clock or whatever? What's going on? And the problem is, it's not a problem really, but uh, these uh, talks, these library talks that I've been giving, uh, have been coming at like six thirty and seven thirty or eight o'clock or whatever, and it's kind of shoved our show. Uh, off to one side. Uh, it, it, everything will come back to normal after the eclipse. But uh, to give you just some idea about the building interest in this, Joe, um, the uh, the Hayden Planetarium, I've been associated with them now at the Museum of Natural History for many, many years. Uh, they've, they've asked me, uh, you know, if I would be available to interact with the news media in the tri-state area uh, as we get closer to the event. And I said, sure. And I have not been to the planetarium or the museum since 2019, since, you know, before the pandemic. And what normally I, I have a badge and I normally they give you a sticker for the year, like 18, 19, whatever. So I said, fine, just send me a 21 for my badge. And they said, well, um, we are going about this a little bit differently in the wake of the pandemic. Uh, we've got a new ID badge and we have some new uh, uh things that, that are associated with uh, being on the staff. And we have to, you have to come down and we have to recertify you and we have to give you a new badge. And so that's why I ended up, my, my wife and I, Renata and I, we went to the Museum of Natural History. I got my new badge. We walked around. We looked at the dinosaurs. Joe, I, Renata saw something and she said, I've got to send this to Joe. I got it, said, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's even older than he is. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> I'm older than dirt. <laughs> well, we're both well, older we, than dirt. Yes, I mean we took a little we took a little self tour of uh, the the inner workings of the museum and saw a lot of interesting stuff or whatever. But awesome. but uh, there are a lot of a lot of I think that we're going to see a real spike in interest 
when this when we get closer to the to the eclipse that's two weeks from today i can't believe it in two weeks so we'll we'll hopefully we'll have good weather for that and in the interim um why don't we just talk about the wonderfully wet memorial day holiday weekend that we have in store for our area right well uh, yeah yeah uh, it all goes downhill tomorrow i thought maybe we'd do the weather you know briefly at the end uh after your after your presentation but yeah, I mean, we've got um, uh, tomorrow. The, maybe I thought it would be, probably maybe start with some sun before the clouds roll in, and then the rain comes in. And unfortunately, it's two waves that we're going to have to deal with because this upper low is going to take forever to get it out of the way. And actually, I mean, if you want to look at it from the from a plus side, uh, those thunderstorms last night here were barely enough to make the ground damp. I, yes. I, I, they, it didn't even make it wet. It just barely made it damp. And it was typical of when you haven't had rain for a long time and you're in a really kind of very dry pattern, oftentimes the first time it rains or when it does rain, you can almost smell the water evaporating on the way down. That's kind of how it felt, how it seemed yesterday. Uh, but uh, this could be if both waves materialize and each one could put, produce uh, uh, an inch or so of rain. Uh, somebody's going to wind up maybe with a a good couple of inches and wash all this pollen that's out of the air and that's that that's around here you, you yeah, drive on the streets joe it's like in the winter time when it first starts snowing you can see the tire tracks on on the roadways from the pollen that's how bad it is uh, out here on long island so anyway before you get started just one more thing just a one little um uh, harmless but shameless self-promotion i got the book uh, i came today on uh, amazon under the weather this is a, um, a mystery. This is book number 12 of uh, a series of mysteries that is written by my high school friend, uh, Dr. John Avanzato, who, aside from making people well, uh, is a writer of mystery novels. And in this particular novel, yours truly, is a principal character in it. I have no idea about how it goes. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but that's, that starts tonight. So you can find Under the Weather by John Avanzato on uh, on Amazon. You can download it on your Kindle, or you can buy the paperback, which is what I did. And by the way, I don't get anything out of this. Uh, this is all John's work. Uh, and so none of that, none of none of the profits go to me. Uh, but I'm going to enjoy this. And uh, the chairman Scott Briller said he he got his yesterday. He's already 200 pages into it, and all he said to me was that I'm infamous. <laughs> okay. so we'll we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that uh, and i'll uh, i'll find out soon enough well you know that mustache joe you know what that mustache makes you it makes you look sinister <laughs> yes good uh chris alley says hi chris uh, i i say hi chris and chris says that he's going to get the book he's picking it up on uh, he's getting the book on saturday so this will be fun it'll be interesting to see okay enough about me uh, now on to you. Uh, it's all yours. So have at it. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen first off, which I've just done. And uh, I'm going to uh, turn on the slideshow. This this again is going to be dealing not so much with the eclipse of two weeks from now, but eclipses in general. Hang on a second. Um, it, I have a black screen here. You have a black screen? Yes. Well, um, uh, okay. I got, I see you, you've shared the screen. Um, 
what see. everybody should be seeing on the screen now is the is the moon. Okay, hang on one second. Let me see what the problem is. And uh, oh, there it goes. Whatever I did, it's working now. So the moon is there. The moon. The moon. I'm just gonna turn my thing down. Uh, my 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 cover of my lens. This way, I don't throw myself off as I'm watching because I can see myself up in the upper right hand corner. Anyway, um, so this is going to be dealing with the science and subject of, of eclipses. And of course, uh, the two characters are the sun and the moon. We had a full moon uh, yesterday. And the moon, to uh, those who lived hundreds and thousands of years ago, was a goddess, a goddess by the name of Selene. How lovely is Selene? We also have, during the daytime, the sun. The sun was uh, probably the most important thing in the entire sky. And I know that People thousands of years ago were aware that without the sun, we wouldn't be here because the sun's light and the sun's heat provide enough so that we could be uh, sustain life from all over the uh, all over this globe of ours, all over this world of ours. As my wife now comes in, I have more than my fair share of water, dear. <laughs> and she closes the door without saying anything. All right. So the sun was also a god, at least in the minds of uh, those who lived hundreds and thousands of years ago. The god was Apollo, and Apollo, as you know, appeared over the eastern horizon riding a chariot, which in which he carried the sun across the sky during the course of the day. And then when the day came to a close, he would disappear beyond the western horizon, and uh, we would be back into the night hours. To lose either the sun or the moon was probably the most well, the most tragic of circumstances to those who used to watch the sky, and we have many stories about that. One of these is from the Chinese Chronicles from 41 centuries ago. Uh, the story goes that the day was very bright. The great sun hung motionless in the sky among the Yangtze Valley. The Chinese storyteller records what happened next. The dragon, Lung, restless with hunger, appeared, and before the eyes of the frightened people, Lung began to devour the sun. The day grew darker. The people raised a din, a chant, and prayed. The dragon was startled. The sun slipped from his jaws and Lung vanished to await another chance. Our computers tell us the date. It was October 22nd in the year 2137 BC. Now, back then, 41 centuries ago, the court astronomers, the guy on the left was named Hai, and the guy on the right is named Ho. Hai and Ho. They didn't necessarily predict the eclipse, but what they had to do was they had to keep watch of the sky during the day and night. And if anything unusual appeared, like a comet or a meteor shower or an eclipse, they would have to tell the emperor. The emperor, in turn, would tell the people, and the people would again yell and scream and pray and shoot rockets up to try to scare off the dragon or whatever creature was devouring the sun. But High and Ho didn't do that. High and Ho, the day before the eclipse, had a little bit too much to drink. And the fact that they imbibed a little bit too much the next day during the eclipse, they were, uh, needless to say, inebriated. And when the eclipse was over and when the dust had settled and people finally said, what happened? Why didn't anybody warn us about this? The emperor said, well, I'm going to do something about that. And High and Ho paid with their lives. They were beheaded. That was the price they paid for again, uh, being lax in their duties as uh, uh, court astronomers. Again, eclipses, probably the worst celestial phenomenon, worst in the sense that 
People were frightened that they thought that they would lose the moon and lose the sun forever. Losing the sun meant perhaps that uh, maybe the world was going to come to an end. So it was always a time to be very, very leery about when we had an eclipse. But they don't happen all the time. We certainly don't have eclipses every month. And the reason is because the orbit of the moon relative to the plane of the orbit of the Earth around the sun is tilted, tilted by just five degrees. Five degrees doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot, but it's just enough so that most of the time when we have a new moon, for example, the moon is either going to pass above the sun to the north and miss it or below the sun to the south and miss it. Every once in a while, though, it comes to a point where the moon will pass partially or completely in front of the sun, and that's when we get an eclipse. There's an old axiom that runs like this. Sometimes I think that the sun and the moon, as lovers who rarely meet, always chase, and almost always miss one another. But once in a while they do catch up and they kiss, and the world stares in awe of their eclipse. I suppose it, this is the scene. Celeste and Apollo for a few brief minutes getting together. And of course, all of us on the earth looking up with our uh, instruments at this beautiful sight of these two lovers, this little celestial uh, trace for just, again, a few minutes at a time. But over time, over many centuries, we began to get smart. Not only uh, were we you know, looking skyward at these events, but we made records of them. We took note of when they occurred, how they occurred. Here's a Babylonian uh, 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 script on a Babylonian uh, 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 tablet um, telling about an eclipse that took place around 1000 BC. If we were able to make enough observations, eventually a pattern began to emerge, a cycle began to emerge, and enough so that we were then able to begin to predict when these eclipses were going to take place. Stonehenge, built around 1500 BC on the plains of Salisbury, England, we know today that the ancients used Stonehenge for a number of different things to uh, note the rising and setting of the sun, to uh, mark the time of the seasons. There's a keel stone that's in the middle of Stonehenge. Here's what it may have looked like 1500 BC when it was first built, where the sun on the first day of the summer solstice, it rises above that keel stone. And notice around the periphery of the of Stonehenge, you have these holes, they're called Aubrey holes. And the uh, ancients would use rocks or stones as markers. They would mark off, well, for the moon, they would use a marker and marked off two holes every day. For uh, the sun, they marked two holes off every 13 days. When the moon passed north uh, or, or crossed that plane of the Earth's orbit on its way north, we call that an ascending node. When it went southbound, that was a descending node. They'd move the marker three holes every year at that time. So we began to learn how to predict the motions of the sun, the moon, and the planets. I suppose that our horoscopes that we see in our newspapers today date all the way back to the times of these uh, ancients when they were uh, plotting and looking and observing of the sky. They also began to take note of when eclipses would occur. And let me tell you something. When you knew when an eclipse was going to take place, you wielded a lot of power. You could go up to the king or prince or emperor or whoever was in charge and say, hey, we're going to lose the sun in a couple of days. And the, the emperor might say something like, uh, I'm going to raise taxes 10%. And if you don't pay, then I'm going to darken the sun. Sure enough, the sun got dark 
people would say, all right, all right, we'll, we'll pay, we'll pay. You know, it, that, that was the kind of a thing. And we learned also of cycles. There's a cycle called the Saros cycle, derived from the Greek repetition, eclipse circumstances that will recur every 18 years and 10 or 11 and a third days. It depends upon how many leap years intervene between that uh, 18-year cycle. And it's like uh, we go to Las Vegas and you pull, you know, the one-armed bandit and you get three cherries or three lemons or whatever. Three different lunar cycles all coincide every 18 years to produce the same type of eclipse. The one, one of the uh, three cherries is when the moon is either at full phase or at new phase. You can only have an eclipse at a full moon or a new moon. Then there is the uh, second cherry, which is where the moon is in its orbit. Will it be very close to the Earth? Will it be very far from the Earth? And the third cherry is the times when the moon passes through that orbital plane of the Earth, the node, as we call it. And if it happens to be that it will pass a node at full or new moon phase, we get an eclipse. And again, every 18 plus years, this cycle repeats. I, you know, I tell people, I've, I've told uh, these library talks that I've been giving, I'm, I've been saying I could probably stop 10 people on the street and ask them this simple question. How does the moon phase? I know we look at the newspaper every day, we see the phases of the moon. Can you explain how that happens? How does the moon phase? How does it go from a crescent to a half, three quarters, fold, and back to a crescent again? How does that happen? You know what? I'll bet you nine out of 10 people probably couldn't tell me why that happens. They know certainly it happens, but they, they couldn't give me the scientific basis. And yet, and yet, people who lived in the, quote, Stone Ages, hundreds and thousands of years ago, were able to ferret out and figure out when eclipses occur. Here's an example of that Saros cycle. This is an eclipse of the sun that occurred in 1963 on July the 20th. In this zone that you see here, this is the zone of the partial eclipse. So if you lived anywhere in this area, you would see at least a part of the sun covered. So along this line, see this line right over here? This line passed in 1963 over Los Angeles. That's a 25% line. So they got 25% of a partial eclipse in Los Angeles. Here's the 50% line that passed over Portland, Oregon. Here's 75%. Here is the line that is important. It's not even really a line. It's a path about 50 miles wide. This narrow zone, that's the zone of the total eclipse. You In that zone, you'll see the sun covered for, in this case, one minute and 40 seconds. Now, I want you to look very carefully at the zone of the eclipse where the partial phase is going to be and also the total eclipse. Take a look at the shape, take a look at the path. The Saros says that this eclipse is going to return in 18 years. There's five leap years that intervene in that time, so it's 11 days. So 18 years, that's 1981. 11 days, that's July the 31st. Watch now as we move forward, 18 years and 11 days, boom, look at that. The path of the eclipse, the same type of path, the same type of shape, the same zone of partial eclipse. But wait a minute, wait a minute. In 1963, the eclipse occurred over North America. And now in 1981, it's occurring over Asia, over Siberia. And the path comes to an end now north of the Hawaiian Islands. What the heck happened? Well, remember I said the Saros is 18 years, 11 and one third of a day. In one third of a day, the earth turns on its axis 120 degrees to the east. So that means that over an eight-hour time frame, 
the path of the eclipse when it comes back 18 years later is not going to be over the same part of the world. It'll be over a different part of the world, in this case, Asia instead of North America. Now let's do it again. Let's go another Saros cycle, 18 years, 11 days, 18 years plus 1981, that's 1999. And 11 days, that would take us to August 11th. And if we move forward one cycle, again, look, the path of the total eclipse, the same type of path, the same area of the partial eclipse that's visible. But this time, because of that third of a day, now the Earth has turned one third of a way and the shadow started over just south of Nova Scotia, over the Atlantic Ocean, over Europe. First time in over 40, almost 40 years, Europe was going to be treated to a total eclipse. They made a big deal about that in 1999. And then the shadow continued, ending over the subcontinent of India. One more time, one more time, 18 more years. But this time, four leap years intervene in that 18-year period. So not 11 days, more like 10 days. 18 plus 1999, it's 2017. 10 days to August 11th, that's August 21st. Look, the shadow of the moon again passing across. And this time, just like in 1963, remember in 63, the shadow passed over North America. And now here we are again, 54 years later. And again, the eclipse has returned to North America. This is another cycle. This is the cycle that they call the exiglimos. I don't want you to remember that. I, I'm not asking you to remember that. But the, what it meant was triple Saros, turning of the wheel, the turning of the Saros clock, one full cycle around in that 54-year period and just over one month, 32 days plus or minus one day. I want you to remember that. I don't want you to try to remember exiglimos or even triple Saros, but remember the number 54. That's going to come into play later in this talk. 54 years and uh, one month later, an eclipse will occur in the same area of the world that it had happened 54 years earlier. Now, what the heck is this? What the heck? You know what this is? This is a computer. This is called the Antikythera Mechanism. This was found buried in Ankara, Turkey, and we dated it back to 200 BC. And believe it or not, in our 21st century world, we have actually redesigned, we have actually made replicas of what this thing was all about. There were 38 gears. There was a crank. And apparently, all those years ago, 200, year, 200 BC, you would turn the crank, this thing would begin to turn, and it would predict the positions of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, also the positions of the sun and the moon. And the amazing thing, this is the thing that blows my mind, the amazing thing about this is that when the moon was coming close to the sun, sometimes it would pass above it. Sometimes the moon would pass below it. It was replicating that five-degree inclination to our Earth's orbital plane. 200 BC, this machine was made. And also, whenever the moon was in line with the sun, it would predict eclipses. This was a Stone Age eclipse computer, believe it or not, in 200 BC, long before your iPhone Long before even Radio Shack started offering a computer, the TRS-80 in 1980 with all of 400 baud of computer power, before any of that, in 200 BC came the Antikythea mechanism predicting the motions of the sun, the moon, the planets, and eclipses. Absolutely amazing. And, you know, you could use eclipses for good. I mean, you know, I know that people were 
uh, afraid of, uh, of eclipses, but sometimes uh, good things come out of eclipses. Probably the most famous eclipse of ancient times ended a five-year war between the Lydians and the Medes. These two Middle Eastern armies were, were locked in a fierce battle when suddenly the day was turned into night. And the sight of this eclipse, this total eclipse, which we now know occurred on the 28th of May, 585 B.C., even before the Antikythera mechanism was built, was startling enough to cause both nations to cease hostilities at once. They agreed to a peace treaty, and they cemented the bond with a double marriage. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could stop war in our 21st century world today with the occurrence of an eclipse? It's not going to happen, but it did happen in 585. A war, a five-year war was halted. Peace treaties were signed. Double marriage. That was wonderful. Another very historic and famous eclipse involved this guy. You know who this guy is. You learned about him in grammar school. Cristoforo Colombo. He sailed the ocean blue in 1492. In fact, Christopher Columbus didn't sail just once. He sailed across the ocean four times and visited new worlds and new islands uh, in his trip. But the fourth expedition, that was also his last expedition, he very nearly ended up going nowhere. We, we may have, in the encyclopedias, uh, we may have put uh, Christopher Columbus with a question mark, 1503, because we may not have uh, known what happened to him uh, after that uh, time. Because in 1503, on his fourth voyage, he found himself stranded on the island of Jamaica. His ship was damaged beyond repair. Provisions were running low. He knew that there would probably be a caravel, a, a, a rescue caravel from Europe, but he thought it was probably going to happen in a few days or maybe even a few weeks. He didn't realize it was going to happen much longer than that. And in the time frame that he was waiting, uh, in order to get food and water from the Jamaican natives, he traded. His men traded baubles, trinkets, tchotchkes. I mean, the natives never saw a bell before, but they were amazed by that. And so these little things that they, they were given by Columbus and his crew were enough to get food and water. But after a few weeks, after a few months, the Jamaicans finally refused to supply him with any more food. And Columbus was now in trouble because not only was he getting no more food and water supply from the natives, but now his own men were getting ready to turn against him. Faced with the prospect of starvation and mutiny, the great Italian admiral conceived of an ingenious plan. From his navigational tables, he knew that on the last day of February in 1504, there was going to be a total eclipse of the moon. And that eclipse was going to begin as soon as the moon came above the horizon. And so he got the chief priests and scribes of the uh, Jamaican uh, natives together. And he announced that because of the fact that his Christian God did not like the way that the Jamaicans were treating him and his crew, that the Almighty had decided to permanently take the moon away as a sign of his displeasure. And Columbus timed his theatrics precisely. No sooner had the moon popped up above the eastern horizon, a little bite was taken from it. And soon more and more of the moon was uh, bitten out. And soon, when the moon was down to just a sliver, the natives were terrified. They're running every which way, pleading with Columbus, please, please, don't take the moon away. We need the moon at night. We love the moon. Please, please, we'll do anything. Get, we'll give you all the food and water you want. Just don't take away. But Columbus of course, waited until the moon was completely covered. And then he told the natives, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try. I'm not making any promises, 
but I'm going to try to intercede on your behalf. I'm going to go back to my old, my, my uh, Christian God, talk with him, reason with him, bargain with him, and I, I will try to persuade him to bring the moon back. If you promise that you're going to give me the food and the water, and the natives, of course, said, yes, yes, yes. All right, I'm going to go into my quarters now and consult with my God. You want to see who his God was? If you watch the movie The Wizard of Oz, you're certainly aware of what the God was. It was this, a simple hourglass. But Columbus was using that hourglass to time out the duration of the total phase of the eclipse. And when he knew, based upon his tables, that totality was almost ready to end and the moon was ready to reappear, he stepped back outside and he told the natives, okay, I have convinced my Christian God to bring the moon back. As long as you give me water and help my men and, and, and bring food to them, we'll bring the moon back. And the natives, of course, <laughs> they, they, they listened. And as soon as the moon started to reappear, well, need, us, need I say to you, Columbus had no more problem with the Jamaicans who gratefully supplied Columbus and his men with all the food and supplies they needed until they finally were rescued and finally they all returned to Europe. But what is this about eclipses? What is the science of eclipses? What does it all boil down to? You know what it all boils down to? Shadows. Shadows. That's all it is. You know, the sun shines, lights up the solar system, uh, causes shadows from the planets. You throw a shadow. I throw a shadow. Maybe you remember Robert Louis Stevenson and his little poem, Little Shadow. I have a little shadow that goes in and out with me. And what could be the use of him is more than I could see. I'm going to show you something right now. This was from a playoff baseball game between the Washington Nationals and the San Francisco Giants at Pac Bell Park in San Francisco. This was during a playoff game a few years ago. And uh, during the game, something happened that caused everybody to stop for a few seconds. And uh, you'll hear the play-by-play of the announcers as this uh, unusual event took place. as a result of a blimp or a plane flying overhead. It's two balls in his strike to LaRoche. Even Adam had to look up and say, what is going on here? That would be the blimp. The lights went out. No clouds. Beautiful sunny day. It's hard enough to hit Madison Bumgarner. Well, <laughs> you can see, just like the play-by-play announcer said, what happened? The lights went out. And that is a microcosm of basically what happens when we have an eclipse of the sun. There you see the giant shadow of the blimp on the, on the baseball playing field. And, of course, as you saw, it was moving along. Now I'm going to show you something else, something rather similar, a different type of shadow. This was taken from the now-defunct Mir space station back in 1999 as it was flying over Europe. This is not the shadow of a blimp. This is the shadow of the moon, this dark blotch. And uh, this is not a baseball field. This is the Earth. This is our Earth. Remember, I mentioned that Europe did not see a total eclipse uh, for almost 40 years back in 1999. And here is the shadow as seen from 250 miles out in space, looking down on the Earth. And if you were in that dark blotch, you got a chance to see one of the great spectacles of nature, a total eclipse of the sun. So we're going to talk about eclipses of the sun in a moment. I want to just get the eclipses of the moon out of the way. As I said, the sun shines, the Earth cast a long conical dark shadow into space for almost a million miles. Well, the moon is only a quarter million miles away from the, from the Earth, 
So there's no problem in getting the moon totally and completely immersed in the shadow of the Earth. There's plenty of room. And we know that the moon does not shine on its own. The moon instead shines by reflected sunlight. So it stands to reason when we lose the sunlight, when the moon is deprived of that sunlight, it should go dark. It, it should totally disappear, right? But it doesn't. Here's a composite of a total eclipse of the moon. You can even see how the shadow of the Earth here is circular, and you see the composite photographs here as the moon is moving into the shadow and getting more and more covered, and it finally is completely covered. But look at the moon. It doesn't black out. The moon actually lights up a reddish or coppery color. Why is that happening? Well, think about this for a moment. If you were an astronaut and you were on the surface of the moon when a total eclipse of the moon was taking place, well, what are we talking about? What are we seeing in our lunar sky? Well, first of all, you have to understand a little bit about the atmosphere, our atmosphere. It acts like a lens, and when the sun is high in the sky, the short wavelengths of light. Remember in your earth science class when your science teacher took out a prism and broke the sunlight into different colors? Short wavelengths are tilted more toward the blue end of the spectrum. When the sun, however, is low in the sky near the horizon, when it's rising or setting, the wavelengths, the light is taking a longer path toward your eyes. Longer wavelengths tilt more toward yellows and oranges and reds. That's why when the moon and the sun get low to the horizon, you see that ruddy color. And again, the atmosphere acts like a lens. Now, from the moon, the Earth is getting in front of the sun. It's an eclipse of the sun from the moon. But when you're looking up at the moon, at the, uh, looking up at the uh, Earth, I should say, during an eclipse of the sun from the lunar surface, again, we're in the shadow of the Earth. We should see darkness. But the atmosphere bends the light of the sun along the edge of the, of the Earth and onto the surface of the moon. And again, what is that color near the edge? It's the red color. It's at, at totality, during a total eclipse, the combined light of all the sunrises and sunsets on the surface of the Earth at that moment is what's lighting the moon up with that red or orange color. And that is why the moon doesn't disappear, but again, turns that orange or copper or ruddy color, as some call it, a blood moon. And interestingly, Total eclipses of the moon occur less frequently than total eclipses of the sun. Yet I'm sure everyone who's watching and listening to me right now has probably seen at least once in their life and probably several times in their life an eclipse of the moon. But maybe most of you have never seen a total eclipse of the sun. So how is it if something that occurs less frequent is seen more frequently? It's because of the region of visibility. Remember I told you earlier, for a total eclipse of the sun, you need to be in that narrow path cast by the shadow of the moon, and it's only about 50 or 100 miles wide. But during a total eclipse of the moon, everybody who is on the dark side of the Earth and has the moon in their sky when the eclipse is occurring will see that eclipse. So in this case, for example, if we had a total eclipse of the moon happening right now, everybody in North and South America would see it. We're not talking hundreds or thousands or millions. We're talking billions of people a potential audience of billions to see this eclipse of the moon. And you know what? The visibility of a total eclipse of the moon is not different than going into a movie theater. I'm serious. Think of the time when you go to a movie theater. Next time you go see a movie, think of all the people who are sitting in the theater with you. 
think of those people as being you know, maybe a, a city or a place somewhere uh, on, 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 uh, in, in a state or in a country or on the continent. You're all on one side of the earth. The screen would be the moon. And nothing happens, of course. It's no big deal when you're staring at a blank screen. But then the technician darkens the theater. Now we're into nighttime, right? You're on the half of the earth that's in night. And now the technician plays the movie, which lasts two or three hours. And again, that's just like an eclipse. In, within a lunar eclipse, pretend that the moon is the, is the movie screen. No big deal. Most of the time you look up when you see a full moon. But on those nights when we have an eclipse, it's like we're running the movie. Well, we're not running a movie, but we're running a, a shadow show, if you will, and a play of different colors on the moon's surface. And that, too, lasts, what, two or three hours, just like the movie. So, again, being in a movie theater is watching a movie is very much similar to watching an eclipse of the moon from here on the Earth's surface. Yesterday morning, there was a total eclipse of the moon. Yesterday morning. How come you didn't hear anything about it? because we couldn't see it here in New York. As soon as the eclipse began, the moon moved below the horizon. The sun came up on the other side in the east. Daytime came, and that was it. No chance of seeing the eclipse. We didn't see it from New York. But if you knew anybody who lived to the west of the Mississippi, at that same moment, it was still dark out there in Los Angeles and Denver and Seattle or whatever. It was still dark then. Those folks did get to see the total eclipse of the moon before the moon set for them. So we didn't see it, but we will see a total eclipse. No, not a total, an almost total eclipse later this year. On the Friday before Thanksgiving, Friday, November 19th, set your alarm because it will be peaking at 419 in the morning. But if you get up at 419 in the morning on that Friday, and if it's clear and you look up toward the moon, the moon will be 97% into the shadow, very much like what you see here, uh, enough so that the red color shows, but also where a small sliver of the moon is still just outside of the shadow. And uh, with fatherly pride, I also would like to say that this picture was taken by my daughter, Maria, of uh, the eclipse that took place a couple of years ago uh, with her iPhone, believe it or not. <laughs> I remember as a kid, as a teenager, when I was in my 20s, you know, spending all that time with high-speed ectochrome and, uh, you know, <laughs> with lenses and taking pictures. And, and here, all she did was take her iPhone, put it up to the eyepiece of my 10-inch telescope. There it went. And, and she took this picture. It's amazing, isn't it? Technology. Technology, Joe. Technology. Technology. <laughs> Have you ever noticed also that the moon and the sun in our sky appear just the same size? And that doesn't seem to make any sense initially. The sun we know is much larger than the Earth and the moon, 400 times larger than the moon. And yet the moon seems to be the same size as the sun. But the moon is only a quarter of a million miles away. The sun is 93 million miles. It is 400 times closer to us than the sun. So everything balances out 400 times bigger, but 400 times smaller. And so what you have here is a case of both celestial bodies looking to be the same size most of the time. However, there are subtle differences. The moon does not go around the Earth in a circle. It goes around in an elliptical orbit. Sometimes it's close, sometimes it's far. Yesterday, for example, along with having a total eclipse of the moon, uh, some of the news media were making uh, much about the fact that it was a super moon because the moon was full and it was closest to the Earth, about 221,000 miles away, what we call the moon at perigee. But two weeks later, 
when the moon is moved to the opposite side of its orbit, the moon will be at apogee, farthest from the Earth, 253,000 miles away. There's a variance of about 12% in the distance between close and far. And also, that 12% is evident in the size of the moon in the sky. Well, you know, quite honestly, I, I think on any given night, if you look up at the moon, nobody's going to say, hey, look at the moon. The moon is much bigger than it normally looks, doesn't it? Or, hey, the moon looks kind of small tonight, doesn't it? I don't think anybody notices. You notice, of course, when you put the two pictures side by side, the difference between the small moon and the super moon. But, you know, normally most people don't make or take note of that. Now, I said yesterday the full moon was at perigee. It was a large moon. It was close to the Earth. Two weeks from now, the moon will be on the other side of its orbit, and it will be at the far point, and it will be smaller in size than normal. But also, when it's at its smallest size, that is when we're also going to have another eclipse, this one of the sun. And in this case, when the moon is at its far point from the Earth and casts or tries to cast its shadow on the surface of the Earth, that cone, that dark swath of shadow. Notice, if you will, that when it's at its far point, the shadow doesn't quite make it to the surface of the Earth. So what do you see if you're underneath the shadow at that red spot? What you see is this. You see the silhouette of the moon, but we also see around that silhouette, because the moon appears smaller in size than the sun, on these occasions, you see a ring of sunlight, an annulus an annular eclipse of the sun, not an annual eclipse. I've seen some newspapers say, we're going to have an annual eclipse. No, it doesn't happen every year on the same date. Annulus from the Latin ring-shaped. And indeed, that's what we have during an annular eclipse, a ring of fire in the sky. I prefer also to call it the penny-on-nickel eclipse. You know, reach into your pocket and pull out a penny and a nickel, okay? Put the nickel on the table, That'll be the sun. And then put the penny on top of the nickel. That'll be the moon. I challenge you to cover the sun or cover the nickel with the penny. You can't do it. The best you can do is have a ring of nickel around the circle of the penny. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the sky in two weeks, an annular eclipse of the sun. And this eclipse occurring at sunrise north of Lake Superior in Canada should really be a spectacular sight. Look at that. At sunrise, the sun morphing into that ring of fire in the sky. And especially when we have an eclipse like this occurring at sunrise and sunset, you get the red and yellows and orange colors. It's a beautiful sight. And this is the path of the annular eclipse in two weeks. Again, it starts north of Lake Superior, continues up across James and Hudson Bay, moves through the Ungava Peninsula of Canada. In fact, there's a little town right about here. It's called Pangnertung. It's a town with 1,500 Inuit Eskimos. They saw a total eclipse over their town in 1979. Now they're going to see a ring of fire eclipse. That's going to pass over a small snippet of Greenland. It's going to go up and over the North Pole. I certainly hope Santa and Mrs. Claus and the elves are aware of that. It'll be a cheerful change from the humdrum morning fair, I can tell you. And then sliding over the top of the earth and coming to an end, over the northeastern portion of Russia, Siberia. 
So that's the eclipse track. It's going to be unusually wide because the shadow is going to strike the Earth at an oblique angle. These ellipses that you see here is the footprint of the shadow. And this is going to happen in two weeks. And I know so many people, I have friends who are eclipse chasers, who made plans to see this great spectacle in Canada. They were all planning to convene somewhere north of Lake Superior to watch this site and look at it. Enjoy it. And it's not happening. No, no, the eclipse is going to happen, but those people who made plans and reservations, that's not going to happen. You see, I, I realize the pandemic is coming to an end. Things are opening up. Ballparks are allowing more people in. Broadway shows will soon be playing. Soon the schools will be filled again. And hopefully by later this year, we'll be done and we will have left the pandemic behind. Slowly but surely, as uh, Governor Cuomo said, the valve is opening. But unfortunately, the valve is not opening enough or fast enough to allow for the border of Canada and the United States to open up. Nobody from the United States is allowed to visit Canada and vice versa. Heck, the Toronto Blue Jays are playing all their home games in Florida. So unfortunately, sadly, for the people who made plans to go to Canada to see this beautiful ring eclipse, ain't going to happen if you don't live in Canada because you're not allowed to because of the pandemic. Here's an animation of what will happen in two weeks. The uh, circle, the uh, ellipse of uh, red, that's the area where the ring will be visible across Hudson Bay and North Pole and Asia. But that notice that big, huge shadow, that penumbra, that covers most of eastern North America, Greenland, the polar regions, even Europe. Our friends in Spain and Lisbon, Portugal and the UK and Sweden and Norway, they too on that day will be able to see at least a part of the eclipse of the sun. All right, so how about us? What are we going to see? Three lines on this map. This line that you see here, see this line? That is the limit of the eclipse. If you live anywhere south and west of this line, you ain't seeing anything. So, uh, Joe, I'm not sure where you are relative to this line. You either are right on the line or you're either going to see a, a small little bite taken out of the sun or you may not see anything if you're just below this line. Uh, I got the mountains in the way. I won't see anything at all. You won't see anything at all. All right. Well, stick around for a couple of weeks. You'll be able to see. Never mind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> up here, up here at this line, if you're north of this line, you will see the entire eclipse from start to finish after the sun comes up. Once the sun comes up, the show will begin from start to finish. But now here is the interesting thing about this eclipse relative to us. This line that you see here, this line is the sunrise line, and it is also the line that delineates maximum eclipse. In other words. For us, here in the tri-state area, the eclipse, the first half of the eclipse will not be visible. It will happen below the horizon. But the eclipse will progress. And finally, when the sun comes up above the horizon, for us, the peak of the eclipse will be occurring. And that means that places like Sault Ste. Marie, Toronto, Ontario, Philadelphia, or Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Philadelphia. lady. <laughs> Atlantic City, Asbury Park. Tell Alan about this, uh, Joe. New York City, Montauk. All of these places will have the peak of the eclipse happening at or soon after sunrise. And that will make for a very, very unusual sight. All of you, I'm sure, at one time or another, have said to somebody, hey, let's go see the sun come up tomorrow morning. Let's go down to the beach. You know, and you go down to the beach, and you, what do you see? You see this big orange ball coming above the horizon. That has happened probably every day of your life. 
Only twice in the last 150 years, in 1875 and in 1959, has there been an eclipse of large or major magnitude with a significant portion of the sun covered coincide with sunrise. And if it's clear two weeks from today, two weeks from this morning, this is what you're going to see when the sun comes up that morning. That's going to be the most unusual sunrise I think anybody has ever seen, at least in this area, for a very long time. The sun will, four-fifths of the sun's diameter will be covered by the moon, creating a scimitar, if you will, or a sickle, or we call it a slice of cantaloupe melon, or a horseshoe with pointed tips. Sunrise within a minute or two, depending upon where you are in the tri-state area, 524 a.m. Maximum eclipse, greatest eclipse, the eclipse reaches its peak 532, eight minutes later. And watch fast because less than an hour after the peak, the eclipse will be all over at 630. You set your alarm and make sure you don't hit snooze because if you hit snooze and then you wake up later, like 615, 615, 615, oh my God, by that time, almost the entire eclipse is, is, is passed. So that's going to be what we'll be looking for. And why do I get the impression and why do I get the sneaking feeling that two weeks from today in the early morning hours, like at 5 a.m., the beaches and shorelines of New Jersey and Long Island and along the coastline of Connecticut are going to be jam-packed with people. It'll be like the middle of the day, of a summer's day, people running to get a clear view of the east-northeastern horizon to watch that sun up and watch that incredible sight of an eclipse of the sun at that particular moment in time. Or why do I get the impression that there are going to be numerous people who are going to get up and get on top of the roofs of their houses uh, to get a clear view. Or maybe if you live in New York City, get to the top of a skyscraper. Did you hear what the Empire State Building is doing? They found out about the eclipse and they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to open the observation deck, the 86th floor. We only open it at 9 a.m. We're going to open it at 5 a.m. And we're going to offer eclipse glasses and you're going to get uh, coffee. Uh, for the Now, normally, if you go to the observation deck, the 86th floor, it'll cost you 40 bucks. But out of the goodness of their heart, the Empire State Building says, if you go and visit them on Eclipse Day, they'll only charge you $120 to see the eclipse from the 86th floor observation deck. Now, the interesting thing also about this eclipse, since it coincides with sunrise, is that when the moon comes up, when the sun comes up, what's going to happen is that the cusps, that the edges of the crescent are going to be pointed straight up. But then quickly after the peak of the eclipse passes, the crescent is going to swivel or pivot around to the left. It's going to look something, I, I suppose, like this. This is an animation that I came up with. Watch carefully now as the sun, again, it's going to come up with the cusp straight up, and then it's going to turn or pivot to the left. There you go. Up, 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 up. There's the maximum of the eclipse. And then after maximum, the moon will continue on its merry way off to the left or off to the east, and we'll be completely uncovering the sun by 6.30. Now, the liability. Got to do this for the lawyers out in the audience. Don't look at the sun directly with your eye. The sun is 400,000 times brighter than the full moon. The sun also has, along with the visible rays, it has the ultraviolet or UV rays. Those are the rays that uh, give you a suntan. Also, infrared rays. You don't want any of that falling on the retina of your eyes. That if the funny thing is, people think when they hear about an eclipse coming up, they think it's the eclipse that is, is the danger. They think that because we have an eclipse, it's dangerous to look at the sun. 
Uh, four years ago, when we had the eclipse in 2017, a phone call came into the Hayden Planetarium. And it went something like this. Astronomer picks up. Good afternoon, Hayden Planetarium. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? I have a question about the eclipse tomorrow. Yes, sir. What would you like to know? I'd like to know when the eclipse is going to come to an end. Can you tell me when the eclipse is going to be done? Yes, sir. It's going to ha- the, the, the end of the eclipse will be at 2.54 tomorrow morning. 2.50. Let me write that down. Wait a minute. Yes, sir. 2.54. Okay. That's right. Okay. That's what's going to end? Yes, sir. All right. So 2.54, I can, after 2.54, I can look at the sun, right? No. No, you don't look at the sun after the eclipse is over. You don't look at the sun before the eclipse. You don't look at the sun during the eclipse. The sun is dangerous all the time, and you have to find a way to block out the ultraviolet, the infrared, and the visible rays of the sun. Not like this dummy here who decided he was going to look at the sun through a telescope. That's not the way to do it. Now, you, you remember, you know, as kids, you probably were told, put a box over your head. Poke a hole in one side of the box. Let the sun shine through the hole onto a, the other side of the... You know, that's passe. I say, forget about that. Don't do that anymore. You, you know, the best way to look at it, got a mirror, you ladies watching right now in your purse, you got a compact or whatever. You guys, you got a little pocket mirror. Take the pocket mirror, make the sun, hit the mirror, and then reflect the mirror onto the wall. Now, if you get too close to the wall, like let's say you're reflecting from like four, five, six feet out, you're going to end up with an image like this. If the mirror is square or rectangular, you can end up with a rectangular image on the wall. But now, go like 50 or 100 or 150 feet away from the wall. Now project the image, and this is what you're going to get. No longer do you get a square image. You're going to get a round image. That's the sun. That's the image of the sun. And the great part about doing it this way is that now you can share the eclipse with a whole bunch of other people all around you. And if you can figure out a way to mount that mirror on something so that you don't have to hold your arm up and hold on to it where it might shake a bit, you you got a perfect view of the eclipse, again, on the wall of, by projecting the image off of the mirror. You'll see that round image. You do it tomorrow or um, you know, whenever uh, the sun is shining, you'll see that round image. Try it two weeks from today in the morning at sunup. And you'll get not a round image, you'll get a crescent image on that wall. That's one good way of watching. Hey, Joe. Yeah. I just have a question because it just kind of popped into my head. Yeah. Uh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot or anything. So no. Uh, but but uh, you know we live in a world now where everybody's on their phone all the time, and I was just wondering uh, if there was a way. You know they've got apps for everything. I'm just just throwing this out there, but I'm just wondering if there's a way that you can. Use your 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 uh, mobile device, uh, the camera on your mobile mobile device to to view the eclipse. Um, you could you could probably do that, Joe. But in order for you to do that, you still have to uh, knock the uh, intensity of the sun, the uh, the intense rays of the sun down, so that you don't cause a cause any damage, I guess, to the camera. Because you know a lot of people are going to do that. They're going to have their camera. Well, they're going to have their phone, and they're going to you know, putting it up there. Yeah, well, you could only do that if if you're getting a total eclipse and you're blocking all of those rays out. But during a a partial eclipse, I would just presume that if you try doing that with your your iPhone, your camera, uh, you would just see a blindingly glary thing in your your, uh, monitor on the the phone, and you probably wouldn't be able to see much of anything. The only, and, and the other thing is, if it's a hazy morning, and we've had that, 
where the sun comes up looking like a maraschino cherry. Mm-hmm. And you say, and, and, and all of us have done that. All of us have looked at the sun either rising or setting in that type of situation. And the fact is, the visible light is cut down, yes. The ultraviolet or uh, UV rays are cut down, but the eye infrared rays are still getting through. So you have to be ge- very careful, even when the sun is low and when it's, when it's hazy, you, you can't stare at the sun for too long a period of time, even when the light is, in t- is attenuated to, to that degree. Here, and one, one other question that just also popped into my head. So I have, uh, so when, whenever I go fishing upstate uh, in New York, which hasn't been in a long time, but I had to buy special polarized sunglasses uh, that uh, otherwise you, the, the sun reflecting off the water would just totally blind you. So without the glasses, you couldn't really see anything. And I was just wondering uh, if no. so. So po- the uh, no. uh, polarized ninety nine percent glasses are not are not going to help you here. Right. If you look at the sun through those glasses, maybe uh, the 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 light has uh, been diminished enough, so the visible light has been enough, so that you see the sun as a disc. But those polarized glasses do not block off the UV and the ultraviolet, uh, the UV and the infrared rays, and sadly. Because the retina of your eyes do not have um, nerve endings, you, your eyes are being burned by those invisible rays and without you, you immediately you being aware it. of it. Okay, so I, I just wanted to ask that question. If you if you do that, you know maybe later on after the eclipse, all of a sudden you notice that there's like a dark spot. It's like and, and similar to what the older folks get with macular degeneration. You have just put a a, a blind spot or a hole in your in your retina. And you don't want that to happen. Now, these these kids that you see on the screen, they are watching through special eclipse glasses that were made specifically for viewing a solar eclipse. They are they are made. Uh, the the lenses are made of a special plastic called polymer. The polymer will block off the visible, the ultraviolet, and the infrared rays, so that you can look safely at the eclipse. And now, uh, I, I tell you right now. If you want it, if you want any of these glasses, you better order them now, because as we get closer to the eclipse, there's going to be a run on getting these glasses. You could try to order them through Amazon, although I would not even be surprised if when you try to order them, Amazon tells you, sorry, we won't be able to get the glasses to you until after Jan- uh, June 10th. That, that, that's the way it, it, it turns out. There's another company. Uh, a friend of mine uh, runs this company. He's been making glasses for 30 plus years. The name of the company, very strange name, Rainbow Symphony. And they even make 3D glasses, but they also make solar eclipse glasses. I'm not getting, as Joe with his book, I'm not getting anything by mentioning the name of this company. But if you go online and type in on Google Rainbow Symphony, you'll come to their website and uh, check this out. Normally glasses like this, wouldn't cost you more than one or two bucks. And four years ago, I remember we had scalpers. People, there was a run on these glasses. And I remember one guy, he was was selling glasses for 30 and 40 bucks a pop. One one set of Eclipse glasses. That's that's how popular these glasses have become. So again, if you don't have a mirror and you don't want to project through the telescope, you want glasses, there you go. Amazon or Rainbow Symphony are the places to try and see if you can order uh, these glasses. Yeah, I'm seeing some here on Amazon. I just popped it up there uh, so for as little, uh, some for as little as uh, under $10 uh, to uh, 
uh, one that's that's uh, a little over twenty five dollars, and there are a few, really? you know, a lot of them that are being shipped straight from Amazon have uh, delivery dates. The one I'm looking at here, delivery uh, for me for, uh, would be uh, Sunday, uh, May thirtieth. Uh, another one said uh, uh, delivery by Saturday, May 29th. Uh, others don't have a delivery delivery date on on the uh, on, on the page, so you have to click on. Uh, the glasses themselves, but there's a lot of choices here. Well, right now we're two weeks away, but if you wait until like a week or maybe a few days before and they say, yeah, I think I'm going to get those glasses, you may have a problem. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm just saying that that's, that's the truth. As we get, as we come to the home stretch here of this presentation, uh, I want to show you that when the moon is near to the earth, close enough to the earth for that shadow to land on the surface of the earth and your it causes that black blotch on the earth's surface and that shadow from that shadow that is where you get a chance to see a total eclipse of the sun one of the great shows of all time now if you're of a certain age like mr chiaffi or yours truly you may remember that there was a saturday afternoon back in 1970 march the 7th of 1970 we had a total eclipse of the sun the path of which went across the gulf of mexico across the southeastern united states went out to see, look at this, look at this. Here's New York. We missed out on totality by 75 miles. I just know that my mom or my grandfather would have gladly driven 75 miles to, see, to take me to see a total eclipse, but you can't drive in the Atlantic Ocean. And we didn't have a boat, so I had to miss out on that. We got 96% of the sun blocked out from here in the New York area, and then the shadow continued to move on its way. Next day, it made front page headlines. Here's the New York Times the next day, showing you the phases of totality and the zone where the eclipse was total. And here at the bottom of the page, a Cub Scout group in Coney Island at the moment of, to at the moment of greatest eclipse, again, 96%, millions watch eclipse in clear skies. An eerie twilight falls briefly here. Uh, that was a great, that was a great eclipse, and that was a great, thing to, to see and observe how I wish we could get an eclipse like that to uh, be visible from our part of the world once again another chance at that wait a minute hold on remember back at the early part of this talk I said the exiglimos the turning of the wheel what was that cycle 54 years 32 days plus or minus a day all right well that was 1970 right so 1970 plus 54 that's 2024 it's only three years from now. And 32 days, actually, it's going to be more like 31. So add 31 days to March the 7th. You come to April the 8th. And look, again, not exact, but pretty much the same, a, a, replica, a replica of the eclipse of 1970 coming back to return. But this time, instead of the path being to our east, across the southeastern states and out over the ocean, the path of the total eclipse this time is going to go from Mexico to Texas to Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, a small strip of, of Kentucky, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, northwestern Pennsylvania, and coming to the Empire State, New York, and then moving into New England. And take a look. Look at this. A close-up view. Once again, we have the footprint, if you will, 120 miles. That'll be the zone of the dark or total phase of the eclipse, there's the shadow, and this shadow is moving. It is trucking along. It's moving at about 2,500 to 3,000 miles an hour. So even though it's 120 miles wide, it ain't going to be on top of you for very long at that speed. 
But look at the track moving over the Ohio Valley, moving through the eastern Great Lakes and up into upstate New York. And if you want to see specifically towns and cities along the blue line that you see here, totality will last three minutes and 45 seconds. So Buffalo, there's as good a reason as any to go to Buffalo. And I, I could tell you now, the Buffalo Chamber of Commerce is already working on plans to lure people to come to beautiful Buffalo for the total eclipse. Rochester, not too far from the center line. Watertown, uh, Harry Chapin, the great uh, singer, a rock singer from many years ago, he said, I went to Watertown. I spent, uh, I spent an entire week at Watertown one afternoon. Plattsburgh. And here, the edge of the eclipse, the totality pad, Belmont, Penyan, Syracuse just inside the path, Rome just outside, Ticonderoga on the edge. Here's where we are, New York. We're sitting in 93% of a partial eclipse. And you say to yourself, well, Joe, that sounds great. 93%, I'll, I'll buy that, I'll take that. No, no, you don't take that because you need to see every little bit of the sun covered. You'd need to knock out the smallest little bit to get into the full grandeur, the full show of a total eclipse of the sun. As beautiful and as interesting and as spectacular as what we're going to see two weeks from now at sunrise, it is the total eclipse that is so incredible, so phenomenal. The moon moves slowly in front of the sun, and at first it just appears to be a small bite, then the bite gets larger, the sky gets to dim, you begin to know why this moment was so terrifying to early man. Now the moment approaches when only the blinding crescent of the sun becomes visible, and then there's the last little remaining bit of sunlight shining through the craters and mountains on the moon. And that creates a spectacular effect called the diamond ring. And then we have the cosmic vision of a lifetime. The corona, the outer atmosphere of the sun comes out. Totality. And with that also, around the edge of the sun, red ruby tongues of hydrogen gas called prominences. Now I'm going to play for you a small snippet of a man who I had the greatest admiration for. He passed on in 2007, but he was for many years the senior lecturer and a very, very good friend, one of my mentors at the Hayden Planetarium, Dr. Fred Hess. He was also a professor of physical science at SUNY Maritime College, Fort Schuyler. You've seen that under the Throgs Neck Bridge. He was a teacher there for many, many years, won the Chancellor Award for uh, being one of the best teachers in New York State. I once asked him, Fred, how do you do it? How do you, how is it? So many teachers I know, so many people, and Joe will, you know, we remember people when we were taking meteorology in, uh, at City College who would put us to sleep. Fred, no one ever fell asleep during a Fred Hess lecture. And I said, Fred, how do you do it? How, how do you, can you tell me what your secret is? And Fred said, Joe, it's all a matter of telling a story. If you can tell a story or a bunch of stories, the best teachers are the ones that can tell a story. And of course, it also helped that Fred had a vibrant, resonant voice. Well, he took his physical science class in 1979 to Lundar, Manitoba, Canada, 30 degrees below zero, and yet nobody felt the cold. You know why? Because they witnessed the greatest and grandest event that they will ever see in their life, a total eclipse of the sun. I'm going to play you this snippet of audio tape now of Fred and his class as they watched as the shadow of the moon passed over them and enjoyed the spectacle of a total eclipse of the sun. Hey, diamond ring! Look at that diamond ring! Hey, hey, hey! Hey, we saw a trap! We saw a trap! We saw a trap! Beautiful! Hey, look at the diamond ring! 
with the numbers, with the prominences. They're absolutely fantastic. And of course, unfortunately, the, the moon has to move on. The daytime returns, and slowly but surely, the, uh, the sun in its own right returns as the moon moves off and away, and the total eclipse ending. And sadly, a lot of people who see a total eclipse never ever see it, get another chance to see it unless they decide to do some traveling. A lot of people, though, after they see a total eclipse, they say, I got to see another one. Where can I see another one? The last time we had a total eclipse of the sun in New York, my grandfather used to tell me stories about this. January 1925, here's the front page of the New York Times. The eclipse was a little late in the, uh, in the uh, prediction, but a brilliant show. Land, sea, air, thrilling millions, city halts to gaze, skyscrapers blinking in empty streets. Everybody looking up to the sun and looking up at that total eclipse. Now, good news and bad news. If you say... I'm going to stick around here, and I'm not going to go in 2024 to see that total eclipse. I'm going to wait until the eclipse comes to me. On average, a total eclipse of the sun is visible from any one location once. This is an average now, once every 375 years. But now the good news. Here in New York, you're not going to have to wait almost four centuries. The next total eclipse of the sun from our area is not going to be too far in the future. In fact, it's going to happen on Tuesday morning, May 1st, 2079. That's only 58 years from now. So for all of you who want to stick around here in the New York area, stick to your vitamins and do a lot of good wishing. But, uh, well, so it goes. But one last thing. Look at where the totality path begins. Look where it begins. Right smack over Long Island and the New York City metropolitan area. So as wonderful as that eclipse is going to be at sunrise two weeks from now, where we'll be able to see almost the entire sun, four-fifths of the sun covered by the moon, as glorious and spectacular as that is going to be. If you are still around on that first day of May in 2079, and you wait for the sun to rise that morning, the sun will rise that morning here in New York looking like that. That's going to be an amazing sight. And I hope... It'll I, be I more think... amazing if we rise that morning. <laughs> Joe, I was just going to say that you and I, and I guess a lot, the lion's share of the people who live here, the lion's share will probably end up watching that eclipse from a totally different perspective. But uh, anyway, 
that that pretty much is the show. For, All right, hang for, on. For, I got to get you back on the screen here. So just give me a moment. And let's see. Let's see if I can. Okie dokie. You know, it's nine forty right now. It's almost like remember, remember when they had the Late Show and all the all the windows would come on as they played the syncopated clock. Mm-hmm. You know, dun 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 dun. dun. By the way, this is the Amazon. <laughs> well, now, now we've now, now we've reached now we've reached the time of the Late Late Show, and now all the windows are starting to now all the lights in the windows are, co- are coming off now as people get yeah, ready to go to bed. Exactly. All right, so let's just um, really quickly uh, just talk about uh, what's going on uh, with respect to uh, the upcoming weekend, uh, because you know all all week long we've been kind of we've been focusing on the fact that this is really this whole setup coming up is all about was all about that upper trough and the upper low that is swinging eastward and whether it would be able to get out get get out of the way fast enough. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that is, uh, it's not going to be able to get out fast enough. And I'll just give you a look here. We'll, we'll pop up. I'm going to pop up the NAM model first. And hang on one second here. Okay, just switching maps back and forth. <laughs> it's, okay. Oh, come on. Seriously? Are we having problems? <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm having issues here. Okay, so um, here, here we have uh, the upper air from the NAM uh, for the ref, from this afternoon, and of course, you know, we sort of have this flat ridge. We had a really beautiful day here today. Temperatures up into the into the 80s, low humidity, lots of sun. Now here comes the upper trough to the from the west across the Great Lakes, uh, and you notice our flow here starts to back more southwesterly. It would be wonderful if the thing would just keep moving along, but the problem is that the bottom part of that trough drops into Ohio and forms a, a, a two-contour closed cutoff low in the upper atmosphere. And by the time we, we always figured through all of this that we were going to lose Friday, we were going to lose late Friday and, and and Saturday, and the question was whether we would be able to generate some improvement. And because the upper low is cutting off the way it is, we actually have a southerly flow uh, aloft. And we are really kind of deep into this southerly flow. So that means moisture from the Atlantic is going to come surging northward and producing rain. I, I think the question is how far west does the steady rain get? And this is, again, for Sunday. Uh, this this uh, upper low is going to eventually get kicked out to the northeast, but that's not going to happen until sometime early on Monday. So I, I think the hope for Memorial Day is that we wind up seeing uh, some some genuine improvement. And, and if the GFS was no different, the European was no different, maybe a little bit slower. But if you take a look at uh, what it looks like on the surface here, so we get this surge of rain. And by the way, the uh, the NAM and even the GFS have a little bit of wet snow there upon the northern fringe of the precip, believe it or not. Um, Come on. <laughs> uh, no, I'm talking way up in, uh, near Toronto. Yeah. And, and they, yeah. they, at one point, I saw a couple of runs that had a you know, little blue up in northern Vermont. Uh, but here's our surface low, which is tracking across Indiana and Ohio, and then it's going to find itself uh, down in Virginia. This is the first low. So you get this rain that comes through uh, – comes in uh, late late Friday, Friday night into early Saturday morning, 
And then it just kind of, you know, piddles around for the rest of the day. It's going to be raw. We're going to have a northeast wind. Temperatures are going to be in the 50s. But because that upper low is hanging, you'll see there's another low there that forms in eastern North Carolina late Saturday afternoon. Here comes more rain up the coast with that southerly flow during the day on Sunday. And then after that, you finally can get this low uh, to move out to the east and see genuine improvement on uh, on Monday. But, you know, Joe, doom and gloom uh, for for Saturday, I, I think that – and that's a lock. And gloom and doom for Sunday. Uh, even if it weren't raining, we'd be sitting in overcast skies pretty much. You know, we're going to be sitting in overcast skies with that wind coming in from off the water. It's just not going to be – the first two days of this week, of, of the Memorial Day holiday weekend – are, are just not going to be good. Our, our mutual friend, Bill Corbell, whenever there was a kind of a situation where it was cool and clammy and damp and cloudy and not really doing much of anything, he always used the word that best described that kind of weather, indifferent. The weather is indifferent. It doesn't care. <laughs> and, and, and that, you know, I'd almost prefer to have, you know, some heavy rain and uh, thunder and lightning and so, something to get you know, get your interest up. But when it just sits there like that, like it may very well later Saturday and Sunday. Right. I just hope you have a good book. And, hey, you may want to get the good Joe book. Coffee book. <laughs> yes, the good book, Under the Weather, by my buddy, Dr. John Avanzato. You can get it on Amazon. And I'm the principal character in this murder mystery. There's a serial killer running around killing weathermen and weather people in New York. And... I'm a central part of this story. I'm four chapters yes. in. I. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, we had two super chat hits tonight. One from the chairman, Scott Briller, and uh, thank you, Scott, of course, as always. And Mark G hitting a uh, super chat nicely. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, he he uh, uh, thanks you for the wonderful presentation, Joe, and it was great. And uh, this is going to be, by the way, in my uh, it's in the video library on my YouTube channel. So uh, you will be able to um, watch, watch this again, and over and over or again. if you, you yeah. and again, you know, and again, and again, and again, and again, from now until June 10th. So uh, just hope that uh, weather conditions improve on uh, on Monday. You know, I've been, I've been, yeah. Well, first of all, I we were thinking about high pressure. Being heavy enough, so to speak, to, you know, push all of this down, let's say by later Saturday and open up the door for Sunday and Monday being nice. But I guess now with the formation of that second system off of North Carolina, that's going to kind of preclude that. That'll keep the high. You say, hey, wait a minute. Before you move in, I got to give them one more shot. Yeah. And that looks like that. Well, it doesn't, it, you know, that the, the formation, that, that trough, instead of moving along, dropping into uh, uh, Ohio and West Virginia and forming a closed low in the upper atmosphere where you've got a, a strong southerly flow up right up the uh, East coast uh, didn't help matters. And that, that allows that the second wave to develop and the second round of rain that'll probably occur uh, on, uh, on Sunday. Uh, so, you know what, it, it, it has to do with eventually it's been, it, it, it overall this spring has, has not been, I, I, I wouldn't classify this spring as being a, a bad spring. Uh, I think we've had far worse than this. We've had actually a number of decent days uh, in, 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 in the last couple of months. So, uh, it, you know, unfortunately, we lose it on a holiday weekend. I mean, with the dry weather, I mean, I took a look yesterday at my lawn. My lawn, 
I, I don't really have to cut the grass so much, but now what's annoying me is that these little white flowers, my, my wife says they're, they're clover and they're weeds or they're, they're the equivalent of weeds. And they're, they're, they're coming up like crazy yeah. all over my, all over my lawn. So now I'm in like a, I said, well, should I cut the lawn? Or get, I'll get, it'll cut the lawn, which I really doesn't need, but at least I get rid of these stupid, you know, little white, things coming up or right whatever. well i guess better better to have the little white things coming up as opposed to cicadas like they're having right now in maryland and uh, yeah. places to ourselves exactly all right you know what uh i think we we should call it a night <clears throat> excuse me at this point uh thanks everybody for being here so now i'm traveling this weekend so uh there will be uh and court and this is a good weekend for for joe and i to take a little bit of a break too so we will be back on monday at uh, the usual shopping time, right? 7.30 Eastern time? I'm, I've got to check. I've got to check here. Check your schedule. I'm going to check the schedule here to make sure. What is that? That's the 31st? Monday May? is the 31st. 7.30. It's a date, uh, Joe. Okay, so we'll be back Monday at 7.30 Eastern time. So everybody have a try to have a good weekend in spite of the weather. If, if it does uh, improve enough on Monday... That'll be your day to get outdoors. Uh, otherwise, uh, grab a good book, as was suggested earlier, uh, <laughs> and uh, and we'll see you folks on Monday. All right. So have a good one. You everybody take care. We'll see you on Monday. Bye.